0: There's money to be made, but the ATO is also keeping an eye on these sorts of arrangements. It's important that things are properly set up and documented in the right way to avoid paying stamp duty twice and to be clear on whether you're carrying on a business or not, whether you can get deductions or not, or if things should be on capital account instead. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants. Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm.
1: So 328 of Text Talks, this is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Let's talk about duplex development again. We already did some brainstorming last Monday. You might remember Bill, who lives on a large block of land in Darwin. He temporarily moved to Perth for a few years, but now he's back and he lives in his nice, big main residence. But now he wants to pull it down, build two duplexes on the side and then move back into one of them and sell the other. When he does that, when does his main residence exemption stop? And for what? And what about GST, stem duty, and land tax? We already touched on these questions last Monday, but let's drill into them again and deeper. With Damien Lehman of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney.
0: Well, and I, th- I think in this space, one of the reasons the tax law is so complicated is because the tax office is trying to get at the mischief between people who are investors and who are trying to claim revenue deductions versus people who are genuinely businesses and have decided it's better for them to be on capital account. So I think stuff like Section 26.102, which we might get into, are designed at sort of Cracking down on, on that sort of mischief to make sure basically that people are ending up on the right side of the revenue capital line.
1: Yes. But as a very quick sum of rule, isn't it that the only time you are on capital is basically when you renovate your own home. So if you do flipping, you would be on capital, but any other time I can imagine you would be on income.
0: Uh, I generally agree with that. Yes. And, but if if you're flipping one after the other. I'm not sure whether the ATO would necessarily think you're still on capital account either.
1: Fair comment. If you flip every five or six years, then you're on capital. But if you flip every one or two years, then probably not.
0: I agree with that. Generally, yes. And I mean, look, at, let's use a certain amount of cynicism. I assume that the ATO in each case will look at what's the benefit the taxpayer is receiving before sort of tackling each matter. If it works out better for you if you're on revenue account, then they might think you're on capital account and vice versa one of those unsatisfactory facts and circumstances type of tests, which can't really be avoided in in tax law, like any other area of the law, I suppose.
1: Can you walk through the example? All
0: right. Well, I I won't use too many figures initially, at least. So let's say the example you've sent me, Bill owns a house in Darwin. It's his home. He bought that in uh, January 2000. He now in 2021 wants to develop the property and he's looking to I assume knock down his house and build two duplex units of which one he'd like to stay in and the other one he'd like to rent out and he's interested in how he'd arrange that commercially with a builder to to build these these two new duplex units and also then that teases out certain Tax questions such as does he still have his main residence CGT exemption on on the the unit he wants to stay in is which one or both are on capital revenue account uh, questions about deductions and um, potentially GST. So those are probably that that's sort of how I would describe the example. You agree with that, Heidi?
1: Yes, and I have a very basic question for you, and that is: is a duplex Always a townhouse, but a townhouse is not always a duplex because a duplex is just two townhouses that are semi-detached.
0: So I'll tell you my opinion, but I think these are all again, like common usage, colloquial terms, Mm -hmm. I would say duplex is usually two separate dwellings that happen to be attached. They, though, although they are as buildings attached, they would generally be two separate lots. On two separate titles two separate titles that's right you can even have if you're lucky enough in certain parts of Sydney a triplex of which there you can have three that are attached I've seen some in Fairfield like that a townhouse I would generally define as the same thing but the structures are not connected where you basically have say four little houses or well they can be normal sized houses I suppose but they're sort of on one connected area with common driveway and parking spaces and things like that, but those would still be on separate titles generally. I think often there'd be a strata plan that would be in place even though they're all they could all be one-story buildings. a lot of people think strata they kind of think multiple stories but there's no reason you can't carve it up that way and that's how you do it.
1: The strata plan would be to cover the common driveway
0: exactly you'd need you'd need a bit that's owned by no one specifically the common land the common land the common title by by definition. so so that that's why you'd end up with with that, otherwise you'd have one guy owns the driveway and there needs to be a right of way or an easement registered. It's a whole mess that strata plans avoid. But and but the point about what's a duplex mean, I suspect it's most relevant what it actually means when you look at the zoning of a local council area, because certain, certain areas will be zoned for a normal dwelling, a normal house. Uh, I think that's 1A or something and 1B I might be getting all this wrong, but let's say 1B might allow a house or a duplex as well with specific permission granted by the council. And my understanding is that land, particularly near train lines and that sort of thing, are generally zoned for a a higher density of residential space, which includes things like duplexes and even triplexes in certain places.
1: So Bill has moved out and starts to draw up some plans and so now we basically have three scenarios in the first scenario bill develops himself and pays the builder in the second scenario bill and the builder enter a joint venture and so bill contributes the land and the builder covers the construction costs, and then in the end everybody gets a house and then the third scenario is where bill just sells and then the builder develops it and then bill buys it. Back and that probably is a very easy scenario, whereas the other two are probably more complicated.
0: Yes. Well, and I suppose the question might be which of those three arrangements would you choose, and why would you choose one and not the others? I would say that generally the third option of selling to the builder, and then the builder subdivides, builds one of the units, and sells it back to you, that's generally not done due to the extend duty. duty that's payable. So you're really looking at options one or two, which were, I I stay the owner and I, I have my plot of land. I want to subdivide, build two units on it. And I want to be in charge of that process and hire a builder to do all that sort of thing. Versus I don't just hire the builder, but I enter an agreement called a joint venture agreement, which basically is rather than paying the builder their set fee, I'm paying them a share of the profits. Why would you choose one and not the other? So basically, I think it'll come down to financing. If you can afford the cost involved yourself, I think you'd usually choose the first scenario where you just hire the builder to get everything done. But often you might not have that finance available, uh, particularly because I understand construction loans might be six, seven percent or above, given the fact that building arrangements like this, that there's certain risks in them. The property might not go up. There might be contingencies that happen, you know, it rains for a month and, you know, everything blows out or blows out. Uh, so if you don't have the finance available, then a joint venture arrangement where essentially you're giving away more of the profits might be what you end up doing. And, uh, and sorry, the reason we do the joint venture is we're basically making the land available for the builder to build on our land without actually transferring our land to the builder and not incurring that double stamp duty issue. But the builder knows they'll get, depending on the arrangement, you might give them one of the two units, or you might give them a share of the sale proceeds of that second unit you're going to sell or whatever. So I would say it comes down to basically the finance for which of those two you would choose. I suppose in theory, the first option of you hiring the builder yourself and it kind of means you're running it yourself and you, you'll you need to be involved in getting the plans drawn up and all, all the running around that goes with that, which maybe not everyone wants to do, I suppose, but that's my thinking about those, Heidi.
1: It's true. In the first scenario, you would be hands-on, whereas in the second scenario, you most likely can just kick back and put your feet up and let the builder run the show.
0: That's right. and. I mean, a potential variation on this is you could, rather than say have a joint venture arrangement with the builder, you could have an arrangement with someone who's a project manager. It wouldn't quite be a joint venture arrangement, but some sort of commercial arrangement where you pay someone to do all the running around for you, which would be more like the first scenario. And they hire the, well, you hire the builder still, they liaise with the builder and they might have expertise involved. And a minor point, but a joint venture what is that that's when two people going to go in together on a particular enterprise a once off thing that you're a once off project where you pull money and resources and expertise and you split the profits at the end but the point is it's a once off thing once off project it's not a partnership where partnerships are usually ongoing and you want them to be avoided because for legal reasons such as splitting, you know, the liabilities and that sort of thing. Partners partners are usually able to bind each other to liabilities. So you don't want a partnership in an arrangement like this. You want to make clear, this is just the once off. We're just pulling resources for this one project, splitting the profits. We're still seen by the law and by the, including the tax law as two separate entities. We're not in, to, uh, we're not in together as a single partnership, which, has all the sort of the issues of sharing liability and, and profits and losses in, under the tax law system. So that's why the wording about joint ventures is uh, important there.
1: If Bill develops the duplex and he then moves into unit, which unit does he move so into? So
0: unit A and unit B.
1: Yes, exactly. So Bill moves into townhouse A and then sells townhouse B or rents it out until sold. So. Does it mean that Bill is on capital for townhouse A and on income for townhouse B? Is it possible to split it or does he go completely onto income? How does this work?
0: He'd be on capital account for A and revenue account for B. And so, so the way you do an arrangement like this is that you'd subdivide the one title into two separate titles because ultimately you want to sell the second title, the one on unit B. So you need to have that as a separate title, physically capable of being sold separately. And you can do that. And it's one of those areas of the tax law where it's pretty simple, actually. The the tax law, the capital gains tax rules will say, when you've subdivided your land, we're just going to see the two new assets created out of the original one, have uh, you just split the cost base as relevant. So if you're, you're splitting the land 50-50 and there's a $200,000 cost base, we'll just say each of them have a $100,000 cost base each.
1: So in this scenario, Bill bought the land for $200,000 mm-hmm. in 2000. So the cost base is 200000 So when he splits it into lot A and lot B, each lot has a $100,000 cost base and lot A continues to be his main residence. Correct?
0: Uh, that's right, and, be, and the point about the split is the tax laws now has acknowledged there's two separate CGT assets, or two separate assets that now exist with separate CGT yes. cost bases and separate, then able to have separate tax treatment for revenue and capital account.
1: And so A continues to have the main residence exemption and has a cost base of hundred thousand, but B has stopped being a main residence, and hence. That cost base would be the market value at the time of subdivision, correct? Which we are saying is 1.1. Or does Bill lose the main residence exemption completely on lot B?
0: Lot B loses the main residence exemption, that bit's clear. The back, Backtracking a bit to lot A. So, so the main residence exemption, it shouldn't be taken for granted that that actually continues after you knock down your house and rebuild something because obviously you need a main residence. That's attached attached to the structure on the building. So if you knock the structure down, by default, you might think that the main residence physically doesn't exist anymore, so therefore the exemption goes too. And that is how the rule would work, except then there's another rule that says, if if your house got destroyed or you demolished it on purpose, if you rebuild one where it was within four years, then we're going to deem that new one to also have the main residence exemption. I think that's section 118. 150 or thereabouts. So A, will still have the main residence exemption because of that special rule. And that's fine. In any case, B ends up on revenue account. So it's not really making a difference to us, whether it's got an uplift or not.
1: That's a very good point. B goes to revenue account. Hence this whole worry about cost base doesn't really matter. So what happens to the $100,000 cost base when it goes on revenue account? Is that a tax deduction or is that inventory?
0: It's, it's inventory. There's CGT event K4, which basically gets triggered when you're, when a capital asset you hold becomes a, a trading stock asset. So Section 104-220, so the CGT event K4 happens if you start holding as trading stock CGT asset that you didn't hold as trading stock and you have to elect under Division 70 to be treated as having sold the asset for its market value. And then so you make a gain if the assets market value is more than the cost base. You get a step up if you elect to pay CGT at the time that capital assets falling into trading stock. If you elect that step up to market value, then you do have a gain for the amount of that step up basically. So if it's from the 100,000 to 1.1 and you elect uh, for CGT event K4 to happen, then that million dollar step up you're getting goes on your tax return.
1: And now you're saying K4 is a choice. Is that correct?
0: Well, let's have a look. This section 70 30. So if you start holding as trading stock an item you already own, but didn't hold as trading stock before, you treat it as if just before it became trading stock, you sold it to someone else at arm's length for either its cost or its market value.
1: So this much about CGT event K4. We will do an entire episode dedicated to K4 in the new year. So for now, just note that you have a CGT event K4 when you turn a main residence on capital account into a property development you want to sell and hence you move it to inventory. And also note that K4 gives you a choice of either having the deemed disposal at cost or at market value. So that is scenario one, when Bill develops it himself and he subdivides. Scenario number two is now basically we have a joint venture, so no subdivision happens at the start, correct? You wouldn't subdivide or would you, be, would you subdivide before you build when you have a joint venture?
0: You'd still subdivide, all of that remains the same, because you need to have that as a separate title to be able to transfer it to someone else, whether that's the developer or a third
1: party buyer. Yes, but the question is, do you subdivide before construction in a joint venture? Or do you subdivide after construction in a joint venture? Or do you always have to subdivide before construction when you build two duplex?
0: You'd subdivide before building. Basically, if you're not maybe guaranteed that the subdivision will go through so you okay. want to make sure that that's better down before you start actually building the two structures. I would say.
1: I see. Otherwise, you have two houses on one title. Yes, and which very difficult to sell.
0: Which look in theory, you can make that work. You can enter like like what what people do. Uh, there's these buildings from the 1930s and 50s where they built these multi-story apartments that were owned by a company, similar to company title, but a bit different. Where, actually, no, sorry what they call a tenants in common arrangement where there might be 10 people who all own the building as tenants in common, as as co-owners. So really all 10 people own all 10 units. And in theory can walk into unit one and walk into unit two and they all own all of them, but then they enter into a separate deed that says, well, even though we're all tenants in common here, we all actually own all of it. We'll agree that you have exclusive occupation to that bit to unit one, let's say, and and that was an arrangement that was done before strata title existed, just like company title as well. So Yes, and
1: it's quite common. I think quite a few of the apartments around Bondi Beach are held by companies and I know this because a client of mine bought an apartment on Bondi Beach and he just bought a share.
0: That's right. So company title was another one of those workarounds, whereas the tenants in common one is – not not where a company owns it, but where a whole bunch of individuals own the building. But because the law says, if you're, you're a tenant in common at all, you have a right to any part of the land. It's not, you don't carve up the land usually, that you have a specific part of it, but that's what this deed does. So this has become a bit of a tangent, but in theory, if you did your, if you built your duplex or one lot of land, you could do one of those tenants in common arrangements.
1: But, but unlikely. And most duplex developers nowadays would subdivide before they start building. I gather what from what you're do. Do. saying, yes. Yeah, anyway. So Bill would still subdivide the two lots, and but now he's in a joint venture, so he hasn't sold. But I assume that the main residence exemption for lot B still stops at the time of subdivision, correct?
0: That's how it would work, yes. Mm.
1: And so would it still be that Bill is on capital for lot A and on income for lot B, even though he's not actually doing... The development, he's basically just entering a joint venture.
0: So it all comes down to intention. What's the intention of what you're going to do with the assets, with with the two lots here? And if it's clear from the documentation and from any other correspondence around it that A is really just to rebuild my home for me, I think that will probably still be on capital account and lot B would remain on revenue. But that would come down to what, what all the evidence shows is the intention around the place. And I I, I don't know if it's worth repeating, there's the story about Whitford's Beach, the idea that these old fellows who liked fishing bought some beach land in Western Australia. And they bought it in a company for various reasons in the 70s. And at that time, they just bought it to access the fishing land or the fish on the water. And then at a future time, a developer bought all the shares in that company. And then they owned the company which owned the land so the land itself didn't move it still was held by the company all that time but the whitfords beach case the court decided the intention has changed you know we're, we're acknowledging that a company is its own legal person it's not that the land has legally changed hands but the basically the the brain of the company to the extent we pretend one exists has changed its mind that now it's holding that beach land for, for a business to develop it and sell it for a revenue account. So change from the time that the developer became the shareholder. So, and that logic extends to, to all these other situations too, but what is the ultimate intention?
1: Good. So that means lot B would move to income at this time of subdivision.
0: Probably. Yes. It would, it would be at the time the profit making intention emerges, let's say, which that's probably as good a time as any that that would happen, you know or or if a joint venture agreement was entered before the subdivision went through on the basis that we expected the subdivision would go through later, then maybe at the time of that earlier agreement, even
1: so the next question is the um tax deducting the finance cost, so the interest on the loan, and I have been corrected that I must not talk about a mortgage because a mortgage is only a security instrument, so it's the interest on the loan, to what extent can Bill tax deduct the interest on the loan he still has on the uh, property? I assume that for lot A, he can't tax deduct it at all because in scenario one, in scenario two, it remains his main residence and he remain, he keeps the main residence exemption, hence he can't can't tax deduct the interest. But for lot B, since lot B is on income, he should be able to tax deduct interest cost during construction. Do you agree?
0: Uh, I do. I I would say that generally what the tax law is trying to figure out is there's the general deduction rule, section 8-1, which says basically if you're spending money to make money, then you can deduct that expense unless it's got a personal or domestic nature, which is why you can't deduct things on your home, basically. But then the issue comes in where at what point are you spending money to make money or, or spending money as part of your business? And a, what, what is the scope of your business specifically? Are you carrying on a business or not? Because that's not always straightforward. If you're you know, if you're trading some shares here and there, you're probably not carrying on a business. But if all you do is you have a whole bunch of computers set up and you're trading shares heaps every day, then maybe you're in a business of share trading, similar to renting out property. If you have one investment property that you rent out, that probably is not a business. But if you have 20 of them and you're just driving from one to the other and chasing up payments and administration stuff, then you maybe are running a business. And there's all sorts of rulings about this. And what the that section 26-102 is getting at, which I think is a relatively new rule that's come in, is to say that. If you have vacant land and you're not really using it for business, then you can't deduct any costs from that vacant land, which is something that you shouldn't be able to do anyway because a vacant piece of land, it should be clear, is basically a capital account thing because you're not planning on doing anything with it. And and any expenses will go to the CGT cost base of the asset and they are taken into account that way. But there's this rule here at 26.102, which says if it's vacant land and you're not otherwise carrying on a business, then you can't deduct things. So basically, I think it's trying to make it harder for taxpayers who say, oh, no, I have that land there. And that's part of my business that I'm running. I'm going to develop it in many years time. I just haven't got around to it yet. And so I can deduct it because there's certain cases where you, you want a revenue deduction today more than you want an expense to be added to your CGT cost base, which you only get the benefit benefit of if you sell the land in 10 years' time, let's say, or at some future time. And the weird thing about that rule at uh, 26102 is that it says uh, you can have land on which there is a residential building, but you can't deduct things even if you have a building on there, i.e., it's not vacant land, you've got a building on there, if it's not a residential property that's lawfully able to be occupied and isn't otherwise available for rent. So it's cracking down on people saying, no, no, I have a property there. it's part of my 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 uh, property rental business that I have, even though you know it's half of it's fallen down and and I can't actually rent it to anybody. it's stopping me claiming a deduction there. And the last point I'd make is it it makes clear about that we're we're focusing on these people who are basically trying to stretch the definition of a business beyond where they reasonably should be able to. So, so this, that rule there will only deny deductions uh, basically to humans, but, or trusts, I suppose, but there's a section in there that says, if you're a company, then this rule doesn't apply to you. You can still claim deductions or if you're a large retail super fund or some other investment trust, which by definition, those entities are generally carrying on a business and we, we want to give them the ability to deduct things.
1: So companies don't need to worry about it anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. If you
1: run a business, then you don't need to worry about it. Yes. And so the only time you need to worry about it is if if it's on capital and it doesn't have an, a building on it that can be occupied. So basically if you let a heritage listed house decay as so far that in the end it just has to be pulled down for example then you can't tax deduct the holding cost on that
0: Uh, that's right and in this case of our example with bill here he will knock down his house subdivide he'll have lot a and lot b which are empty for a period of time those lots of vacant land here but he should still be able to claim deductions at least on b on revenue account if he can demonstrate that a business is being carried on which the business would be one of property
1: development. That means Bill can tax deduct the interest on the loan during the construction of Lot B, for Lot B. Yes.
0: Well, I suppose Bill already owns the lots in his own name. Sorry, I was going to say a company would be better suited for this arrangement anyway, but that's not going to happen here because Bill will remain the legal owner of both.
1: Exactly. And so he can tax deduct in both scenarios. Whether he develops it himself or whether he goes into a joint venture, for Lot B, he can tax deduct the interest on Lot B.
0: That's right. And it's about making sure you've properly documented what you're doing uh, so you can argue that you've you've crossed the threshold of carrying on a business because you want to be a business in this case to get those deductions. Because because Lot B is stuck in revenue account already, it you want the ability to, because then any profits are taxed as income, you want to at least get the flip side of that arrangement of of being able to deduct things on revenue account as
1: well. Next topic, GST. Lot A is not subject to GST, but Lot B is most likely subject to GST because we would be over the $75,000 threshold and we would be running an enterprise, correct?
0: Yes, I agree with that and um, basically so any supply will have GST on it if you are carrying on an enterprise. Basically, as you're saying there, um, a sale of an existing home will not have GST on it because it's usually input taxed. Uh, but in this case, since we're well, we're a property developer here. Lot B, the unit we're building on there, will be new residential premises, which will have not been sold as a home before. We will have just built it and then we will have sold it to some third party purchaser. So in that case, GST will apply to lot B. Let's have a go at the margin scheme. Well, it's it's there to benefit property developers who are acquiring land from private landowners, who are acquiring, acquiring land as a GST, uh, for, as a transaction on which there's no GST in the first place. So if I'm a developer and I like somebody's house and I wanna buy that, that person selling the house to me won't charge GST, I won't pay any GST and I won't have any input tax credits then to receive on that because I didn't pay any. But because I'm a property developer, when I sell, well, sorry, let's say that was vacant land on which I build a house, then it'll be new residential premises, I'll have to charge GST on that. And so that I'm not disadvantaged as a property developer in that situation compared to another developer who bought land on which GST was charged, the, the margin scheme says, I can elect to only pay GST or charge GST on a certain margin, which might be calculated from the year 2000 when GST came in, or might be calculated from an earlier sorry, a later time that I bought that property. So I guess basically the margin scheme is saying, There's a big distortion between developers who buy, who acquire land on which there's GST and those who acquire land that there was not GST on because when they develop and on sell, there's a big economic difference for the treatment. So we'll have a margin scheme that will reduce that difference, that distortion that happens if land was bought after July 2000 by a property developer who's then on selling it then the margin scheme, if they elect to choose it, will allow them to only have GST on the value they, on the gap, on the margin between what they bought the property for and what they're selling it for today, rather than 10% of the whole price. So that's sort of how the margin scheme works today for property acquired after July 2000. So if if land was acquired for a million dollars in 2010, it's being sold for for $1.5 today, then instead of $150,000 of GST being 10% of 1.5, it's only 10% of the gap there of the $500,000 being $50,000. So that's where the margin scheme can provide some benefit because then the developer has access to a buyer who will pay pay $1.55 million instead of 1.65 million.
1: Next topic, land tax. From when on does land tax apply? Does it apply from the point of subdivision?
0: So land tax, it's its interesting. It gets assessed on a yearly basis in advance, unusually for several other taxes. So in New South Wales, what happens is on the 31st of December, the government looks at the land, what's it being used for, And then assesses that property for land tax for the whole next 12 months.
1: Yes. So that means subdivide on the 1st of January.
0: You mean that gives you a better outcome?
1: Yeah, because then you have a full year. You basically don't pay land tax for.
0: Yes. or the 2nd of January or the 3rd. But yes, Yes. that's right. Basically, the... The
1: earlier in the year, the better. Yes. And does land tax apply to lot A or just to lot B?
0: It won't apply to lot A because lot A will be a home and that'll have a... Residence exemption.
1: Okay. So land tax only applies to lot B. And then stamp duty will only apply to lot B when it actually gets sold.
0: Yes, payable by the third-party purchaser who buys it. So yes. there'll be no stamp duty otherwise payable by bill. You you talk about these arrangements between the owner and the developer. You know, rather than the owner transferring the land to the developer to do their thing with it and sell it, even if your plan, in this case, Bill wants to hang around and leave in one of the units. But if Bill was just someone who had land and wanted to sell it for a profit and you know retire to the beach somewhere, then a joint venture arrangement like this would still be the way to go, where the agreement is, well, joint venture or or engaging the builder separately, but in either case an arrangement that doesn't involve necessarily selling the land to the builder who would then, develop it and sell it to third parties to avoid that double-step stamp duty.
1: Yes. So know, with, less which, stamp
0: duty, more profit for everyone.
1: Yes. So whatever you do, only sell the land once, not twice.
0: If, if you can arrange it that way, definitely, which is how people do these sorts of arrangements. So property development is a very common thing, particularly in Australia, two-thirds of the investment income is, is held in property and it's part of the Australian dream let's say a lot of smaller taxpayers engage in it because of that there's money to be made but the ATO is also keeping a, a, an eye on these sorts of arrangements and it's important that things are properly set up and documented in the right way to avoid paying stamp duty twice and to be clear on whether you're carrying on a business or not whether you, whether you can get deductions or not or things should be on capital account instead.
1: Welcome back. We will talk about property development again next year, starting as mentioned with an episode about CGT event K4, but then also look at other aspects. So if you have a property question, please email it to me. So this was our last technical episode for this year. Next Monday, we will do An episode with some general reflections about how we run our firms, you and I. And that is also what we will start with next year. The first episode next year will be an interview with Lucy Cohn, who has 3,000 clients and is aiming to get to 10,000 within the next two years. So she is clearly doing something right. And then the second interview next year will be with Amy Holdsworth of Clarity Street about PI, FYI docs, Sweet files and carbon. The first technical topics next year will be about CGT event K6 when you sell pre-CGT shares and then also as, as mentioned K4 when you have a capital asset turning into inventory. And then we will look at deemed division 7a dividends. When the amendment periods have passed and how the amendment periods might be able to save you, similar to the missing trust distributions we recently discussed. And then our first mini series for the year will be cryptocurrency. More and more of our clients are trading in crypto and hence we need to understand this beast to work out their tax. So if you have any questions about the taxation of crypto, please email me as well. So that's the plan for the start of next year. Next Monday is our last episode and it is meant to give you some food for thoughts. It is with Andrew Hansecker, and the topic is pitch your niche or finding your niche. And in a way, it is a boring topic because we have heard it so many times. And yes, in theory, it makes sense. But when you think of your actual clients and how you have to squeeze them into a niche or say goodbye to them, you know, if you think about actually making this work, it somehow doesn't make sense anymore. And so maybe we have to redefine the term niche and come to it from a different angle but either way next monday let's listen to andrew hansiker's thought on niching and how he did it and then do some thinking over the holidays about the clients we currently serve and how we want to go ahead in the future so until next monday thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support bye for now and see you in the next episode